Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Hope for Healthcare with Dr. Katie Cole in partnership with ICD Healthcare Network. Dr. Katie Cole is a holistic physician, organizational well-being consultant, and change agent, working with industry leaders and proven strategies to heal our national healthcare system and our culture of medicine. Stay tuned to hear today's speaker. Well, welcome everyone to Hope for Healthcare podcast. Today, I have a very exciting guest, Dr. Chris Layrock. He was recently named to an expanded leadership role as the inaugural chief physician executive for New Vance Health. This is a seven hospital system in Western Connecticut in the Hudson Valley of New York. In the newly created role as chief physician executive, Dr. Layrock provides oversight for all medical administrative and clinical functions for the entire system, ensuring quality healthcare delivery for all New Vance Health patients. In addition to executive leadership across the health system's 3,500 member medical staff, Dr. Layrock also leads New Vance Health's multi-specialty, multi-location medical practices. On top of doing all of this, Dr. Layrock continues to practice emergency medicine on the front line. Well, welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for being here today on our podcast. Hi, Katie. I'm really uh, delighted to be here. This is a really important topic. A very important topic. And, you know, I had the opportunity to meet you in person and live at the recent National Healthcare Burnout Symposium in New York. And you were on a fabulous panel discussion, really focused on solutions for resolving not only just physician burnout, but our healthcare employee burnout. Yeah, it was a real honor to to be there and and to learn from our colleagues. It's interesting that so many organizations and leaders are focused on this topic. It's a great opportunity to get get our heads together, see what's working, see what's not working so well. But this format that you're providing is an opportunity to share that. So again, I'm very appreciative to be here. Well, thank you. It's an, you know it's an honor and a double blessing. I think both ways. <laughs> um, and you know we've talked about how there there's all this important work that you're doing, and you're actually evaluating the programs that you're implementing at New Vance Health. And I'm just really excited to talk to you about that today and share that with our audience. So. Great. Let's get going. <laughs> yeah. So you know I always like to start out, Chris. You know I know that you have a story of your of your own in terms of how you became interested in really wanting to resolve physician and healthcare burnout. Can you share that a little bit with us? Uh, uh, sure. I, I mean everybody has a story, uh, so maybe something here uh, will resonate with with other people. But you know I was one of those who knew I wanted to go into medicine when I was very young. It was a lifelong dream. I was super excited about achieving that goal. And quite frankly, I, I remain very uh, optimistic and, and proud to be a physician. But I was so surprised as I was in my um, late 30s, uh, achieving what looked like some success to really be uh, feeling uh, pretty negative and pessimistic about not just my career in healthcare, but you know, healthcare in general. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot of things conspired uh, to get me there. Uh, as an emergency physician, it's, 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 a, it's a stressful environment. We all know that, but any place you are in medicine is, is stressful. But I was noticing that you know, the, the, the patients, again, I'm speaking in generalities, but because the individuals are, are wonderful, but in, in general, and the patients were becoming uh, more complex and, and 
quite frankly, more needy. Uh, there, the, the amount of elderly comorbids with acute exacerbation was, it just seemed to be building and building very, very complicated needy, uh, sick individuals. There was, of course, and you know this better than me, the, the sort of onslaught of behavioral health patients that was just uh, ceaseless and, um, and, and, and highlighting how our society really is ill-prepared to manage uh, all the mental health problems that we have. And as that was going on, of course, you know, as a, as a guy in my 30s, I had three kids under 10. I had all the stressors of, of, that a lot of people have. Um, but there was, a, there was a colleague of mine who I was close with, a physician uh, who died by suicide at that time. And I think all three of these things kind of conspired to make me think, boy, this is, this is not sustainable for me. Something's wrong with how I feel. Something clearly was wrong with how my colleague felt. And I was reflecting on how his behavior had changed and only in retrospect, he had clearly done some outreach to try and get some help. And I don't think our system and our structure at that time was prepared to deal with it. And unfortunately, it had a you know very traumatic uh, result for him and his family. Yes. Oh, yeah. And you know, it sounds like you know every time I talk to a healthcare leader or physician or even nurse who has experienced their own sense of burnout, a lot of times it is a com. You know, it's multiple things compounding because we're the most resilient population, right? So it takes a lot for us to really become overwhelmed and I think wake up to the level of burnout and how that's contributing to mental health issues and depression and anxiety, so. Yeah, my experience, you know, ER nurses, I love ER nurses, they talk about resiliency. I mean, these, <laughs> these people can solve any problem with resource constrained and so forth, the physicians as well. We're problem solvers. We like to fix things. Uh, we're we're tough, and um, you know. But this was this was uh, clearly a, a change that was going on, not just in me, but kind of across my colleagues. And I, I think another part of it, it you know, when you kind of step back and now step back for 15 years and look at it, you know, we all kind of sign a, a metaphorically sign a social compact where we say we're going to go to school. We're going to long time, we're going to delay gratification, we're going to delay income, we're going to, you know, miss a lot of weddings and a lot of birthdays and a lot of Christmases. And, 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 you know, in return, you expect a modicum of social respect, and you expect a, some, some stability in your income, and you expect to be professionally satisfied. Mm -hmm. And that it feels like the social compact is, is breaking or broken for, for many people. Yeah, that's the moral injury concept. I think that we're not calling it. Absolutely, Chris. And so, you know, what I what I love about what you have done with your own burnout story is you decided to. You said you wanted a seat at the decision table, and you decided to go and get educated and um, obtain your MBA, and that made a difference for you. Yeah, although not initially. Initially, okay. initially <laughs> I behaved quite badly. I did what. Oh, no. Um, intellectually dishonest people do is I blamed everybody else. So I blamed the government, I blamed the administration, I blamed the other hospital, the competitor hospital, everybody but myself. And I think at one at some point, you, know, you have to look internally and understand what are the own drivers of um, 
burnout for me. And I think when I started to get honest about that, um, which, which by the way, and this is not um, a minor point, you feel as a physician, there's really no one to talk to. If you express these concerns, it runs counter to what a physician is supposed to be. We're supposed to be a provider of care, not a receiver of care. We're supposed to be knowledge experts. We're not supposed to be seeking information. And at least in the state where, where I was practicing at the time, which was Rhode Island, you know, the Division of Medical Licensure, the full name is the Division of Medical Licensure and Discipline. I believe it's still that name. And if you Horrible. get tangled up in that web, you very often go down a disciplinary channel where they're evaluating you for drug and alcohol abuse and behavioral health problems and your, your functional capability to act as a physician on the front lines. And that's very scary because that's your livelihood then. So you feel like you've got nowhere to turn. So after some soul searching and I think thinking pretty hard on it, I thought I need two things. I need uh, more information. Um, and I need a quote seat at the table because if it's true that uh, the physicians haven't fundamentally changed, there's been physicians for hundreds of years and we weren't all burned out. Something in our externality was changing. I couldn't just be a receiver of those forces. I, need to, I needed to be influencing them. And I thought the only way to kind of get at the table to use your term, you know, in the C-suite, uh, I was raised as you get more education, you get promoted and you get into, you know, you get into those leadership roles where you can truly have an impact. And then you um, make, make appropriate changes and you study them to ensure that there's actually what you think you're doing, you're actually accomplishing. And that's key. That's, that's really key. And I think, you know, a lot of CEOs talk about how they have to make tough financial decisions on a daily basis. And when you talk about introducing an organizational well-being program or incorporating even diversity, equity, and inclusion training, you know, CEOs want to know the, the financial impact and, and how much room financially they have to make um, for a program like this. So I love that you are evaluating what you're doing right now with New Vance Health. Yeah, I, I think for me that my eyes were really opened. I was uh, fortunate enough that there was a wonderful MBA program for healthcare executives at Yale, which was only about 90 minutes from my home. And I spent two years there with a lot of non-physicians and I learned about all the different stakeholders in the mm -hmm. delivery of healthcare equation. I learned about how good natured these people were and how their motives were really, um, that they were, um, highly principled, moral people. You know, these people were not out to, to get us as physicians. But before I went there, you know, I'd been simmering in, in these physician juices my entire career, that whole culture of healthcare. So it's always you know, like an us versus them. But I realized that, no, there's actually a lot of very good-natured people who, who want to make the system better too. And, um, you know, so, so it really opened my eyes. Uh, but more than anything else, it is a business school. I learned that you have to you have to show a return on whatever investment you're making, mm -hmm. and not just financial. Um, and the mantra at Yale, which I wholeheartedly agree with at the at the School of Management, is do well while you do good. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think that for me, this showed me the path forward as it relates to physician engagement and burnout. I thought if we're going to do 
um, good by our clinicians and our staff and so forth, um, we have to do well. It has to have a financial return. Mm -hmm. And that's how my thinking really changed um, as a result of, of going back to school. Well, Chris, I'm really interested to hear what current projects you're working on with New Vance and how you're approaching organizational well-being and employee health and wellness. So sure. Um, so building on the, that insight, um, over the ensuing 10 years, I, I did receive increasing levels of uh, leadership and I was able to influence um, um, senior leaders. I reported to presidents and CEOs as I, as I do now. And um, they are interested in the topic, but it's it's generally kind of a fourth or fifth priority for them. And it's also not a, a one within a clear pathway forward. So the path that I painted for them, addressing the issues that you raised about how there has to be financial primacy, is there is a very clear and compelling case for investment in clinician uh, wellness. The, the traditional metrics uh, that are generally human resource directed metrics, for example, physician turnover, it's highly costly when you lose a physician and have to replace her. Very often 50 to 100% of the, of the physician's uh, salary is associated with that physician leaving and bringing on a new physician and developing their practice. So if you just look at an organization like ours, we've got 1200 clinicians in the medical group. We have a certain run rate of turnover that's a certain number of uh, clinicians, you can calculate very quickly what the cost of that is. And if I can reduce that by 5%, a big number. If you multiply that, by the way, across the nation, it is uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of cost that um, healthcare systems are letting walk out the door and they should be rerouting some of those resources to invest in their clinicians. So traditional stuff like turnover. Then there's absenteeism and presenteeism and productivity. Again, you can show by improving productivity by five or 10% what the, what the uh, you know, financial consequence of that is. And it's very, very favorable because clinicians do work which is highly remunerated. Uh, there are other things that are a little harder uh, to get your arms around, but we know the data is building in this, in this burnout literature now that more engaged, less burned out physicians provide higher quality mm -hmm. uh, medicine, uh, demonstrably higher quality. And if you're in value-based contracts where you're, where you're reimbursed for quality, that pays for itself. Same thing for patient experience. Patients are much more satisfied with clinicians who are engaged and not burned out. Mm -hmm. If you're in value-based contracts, you get paid for that. But even things that you don't immediately think about, like serious safety events, just safety in general, and malpractice and malcurrence, you can reduce all of that through a more engaged um, uh, physician and reduce your medical malpractice premiums uh, as a result, for example. So when you add all this up, there is tons of resources available to tackle this uh, issue head on. You just need leaders who understand that linkage and then have the conviction uh, to do it. 
Well, I really, I really like how you say that, Chris, that, that as leaders, you know, you're able to bridge um, and link the uh, business case for investing in employee health and physician, nurse and clinician well-being. And I think that's so key um, because that is really the role that's ha- that is the niche that we're trying to create right now for hospital leadership in terms of like even the chief well-being officer role, which you're essentially filling for New Vance Health. And so I'm really glad that you're talking about this issue today, because this is the most confusing piece of everything I find. Yeah, and I think it's where people say, okay, even if I had resources, where do I start? Where do I where do I begin with this? And I think you begin with um, an understanding that the problem, the central problem in the equation is not the, the victim here. It's not the clinician, the staff member who's burned out. They are, it's, they, it's a consequence of the environment that they're working in, both the, the leadership culture, but also all the workflows that are put around them. Traditional approaches, and you know, these were all good faith people, but they built resiliency programs, they built wellness programs, they focused on the physical and mental health of, of their clinicians. And you know, so we all know about yoga programs and meditation at lunchtime and masseuse chairs in the medical lounge. And, and I don't mean to make light of them and so forth, but it's it's absolutely putting a band-aid on the on the bleeder. And you know, we're not we're not figuring out why the patient is is exsanguinating. Exactly. And wellness programs for frontline clinicians, it's helpful in addition, but 80% of burnout is really related to systemic drivers, not individual. Yeah. So to build on that, it's necessary, mm-hmm. but it's insufficient. Right. Right. So we do need to show our clinicians and our staff that we care. We do need to show mm-hmm. them that it is absolutely safe for you to be vulnerable and to express how you're feeling in a way that does not compromise your your livelihood. And Mm -hmm. and in fact, we will reward you for it by providing you with the time you need or the services you need, uh, you know, and that's not gonna financially compromise you. And um, that's something I'm very proud of that we do here now in Connecticut and New York, there are state level programs that work with, uh, I'll I'll use the word impaired physicians um, and clinicians, in, in a non-disciplinary way, really trying to restore them to um, their peak performance. And I think that's a that's a sea change compared to, you know, when I was going through my own sort of burnout experience 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. The, the other key, once you recognize that wellness is, is necessary but not sufficient, now the hard work begins because you 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 have to acknowledge that a holistic approach is really the only way to make this work. And, and that starts with the, this, let's call it the C-suite, but the influencers, the leaders of the organization, they, to a person, have to acknowledge that clinicians in particular are the most important asset of the healthcare delivery system simply by virtue of the fact that they do the work that everybody else is getting paid for. We all in healthcare like to talk about how the, the patient is at the center of everything we do, and they are, but you can't have that as your priority, as your mission or your, your value, unless you've got a healthy healthcare workforce. Mm-hmm. So 
you're missing a step if you don't prioritize the clinician's wellness in there. And if so, they'll deliver higher quality care with a better patient experience, with, with better safety, and, and right on down the line. And the patients will be at the center of the equation, mm -hmm. but you have to, you can't hopscotch over uh, the clinicians. So culture from the leadership, the, the CEO down is essential. And as I like to say, if, if, if a CEO can't change her people, change the people, right? You can't have someone who's just financially oriented. You need someone who has to acknowledge that when we take care of the well-being of our clinicians and our staff, mm -hmm. the quality will improve, the patient experience will improve, and the finances are the trailing metric. They, they will improve. But unless and until you do steps A, B, and C, you won't get to the finances. So that's number one. Number two, is really the workflows. And this is the Stanford model that I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with the, mm -hmm. the leadership culture, the workflows, and then of course, resiliency at the center. And here the workflows, you, you can't talk about workflows without talking about the electronic health record. We need to have a, you know, an all hands on deck um, approach uh, to, to managing not just the pebbles in the shoe, the thing that bother docs on a daily basis, but you know, kind of a fundamental relook at um, the electronic health record based on what the clinicians are telling us. Mm -hmm. um, and then number two, you need to talk about the workflows because they've all become more complicated. They've all have more steps added. Uh, there's always you know, just one more thing, just one more thing, just one more click, just one, just tick this one box, just sign this one more form. And yeah. it's, it's death by a thousand cuts. And that's, that's we've long since crossed over that line. So we need to process, innovate, remove waste, get those workflows streamlined so that the docs are doing doctor stuff. The administrate, the administrivia, as our friend Paul Deschant likes to call it, oh. is, <laughs> is, is um, reduced to a minimum. And, um, you know, my job is just to resource doctors and remove administrative burden. And that's, you know, I wouldn't say that that's what most leaders, how, how they would define their job, but that's that's my job. So leadership, culture, workflows, resiliency. That's the approach, but that's a multi-year journey. Yeah, uh, Chris, can you talk a little bit more about that being more of a multi-year investment in your health system when you're trying to completely reorganize the culture of healthcare? Sure, and I, to some extent, it, it's dependent on the size of your organization. But smaller organizations, you've got you've got fewer sites and fewer clinicians and fewer spaces, but you've got fewer people to lead that effort. In larger organizations, you know we're we're big; we can do big things, but we're not so big that we can't you know turn the Titanic around. So, for 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 an organization like us, in earnest, we started our efforts. Uh, it's coming up on a year. Mm -hmm. And we have in the medical practice, we've got about 75 ambulatory sites. Just to give you a little perspective today, we have one of our cardiologist sites, cardiology sites go online, and I believe it's about the uh, 50th site. So we're only two thirds of the way through rolling out our daily management system where we are helping our staff and our clinicians process innovate in their own environments. Um, this just this stuff just takes time. There's a lot of training that has to go on. There's a lot of um, cups of coffee that you have to have with your clinician friends and say, you know, I know you're cynical. I know you think this is the 
flavor of the month. I know you, you've been down this road before with initiative after initiative, but what I'm trying to say to you is we respect you and the way we respect you is by empowering you mm. to be the, the autonomous, um, to have the autonomy, excuse me, in your own environment to make decisions that impact your workflow, you know, within a set of, of, of constructs and constraints. And I think unless and until we, we let folks know that they are respected by being empowered, they're just gonna, they're gonna feel commoditized, they're gonna be disengaged, and they're gonna feel helpless. Well, yeah, exactly. And I, and I love how you address, um, you know, creating really psychological safety and trust again, you know, we have to rebuild trust with our frontline clinicians and our front, we also have to rebuild trust with our healthcare leaders too, because they've been, you know, through a lot, especially with the pandemic and the crunch too. So it's really rebuilding trust for the entire health system. And uh, you mentioned something earlier. I don't know if you're ready to talk about this live yet, but you had mentioned doing mini recordings for the frontline clinicians. Yeah, we, we've been really struggling. We, we ask our clinicians, we all do this, we survey them, we, we interview them. We, 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 in many formats, we seek their feedback. They provide their feedback. We set to work on much of it, whether it's electronic health record optimization or you know, workflow in an office or, or dealing with a culture problem with a leader. And, and then we're either not very good we're not very effective at communicating the work that we've done. So we all know that we're drowning in emails. Um, the last thing that someone wants to do at the end of a long uh, day of seeing patients is get on some town hall at seven o'clock at night. Um, so here at New Bands Health, we've been you know, really struggling to figure out how to communicate because as many people complain about, we over communicate, there's too many emails, then we get the same complaints. Well, no one communicates with us, so, <laughs> so we're, we're not hitting the mark. <laughs> so, you know, the, the insight was that um, a text, there's something unique about text that very much in your face. I don't know about you, but I don't go to bed without um, all my texts being read, but I certainly go to bed without every single one of my emails being read. Yes. Um, there's something just very present there. Um, and by embedding video into texts, it becomes something that's also emerging as a, a real effective uh, communication tool. And obviously the whole world is watching TikTok and Instagram and everything else and video and that's how, and this show, and that's how they're, uh, that's how they're getting their information now. So if we could combine texting and video and make it really short, really high value, I thought maybe that would be helpful. So we've been recording 90 second videos that, you know, kind of like a Becker's Hospital Review, just very terse, um, short, hopefully high value, high impact messaging to let folks know that we asked you, you told us, we heard you, this is what we heard, this is what we're doing about it, and we're measuring it, so this is how we're doing. And that's the, the, the theme in terms of our physician communication these days, because I think folks, they need to feel valued. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it also helps them feel like they're part of the process because they're able to give feedback if, you know, they watch maybe one of your videos and they say, oh, you forgot about this component of, you know, implementing change and, and you forgot about 
you know, how to maybe the process of integrating the change into the workflow on the front line, they feel like they can give you that feedback and it's, and it's instantaneous. So I, and it's also more personal too, because it's coming from you. I really like that. They do. Um, I, I believe so. I'm getting some good feedback. The other thing we're doing since, you know, we're seven different hospitals, it's almost seven different markets is we have at the hospital level, our physician leaders, our VPMAs, mm-hmm. and they can, and use the same technology and give more market-specific information that way. So it's a way to kind of chunk it off and make it more digestible so that someone in one market isn't hearing information that's probably not relevant to their market. So I think we either go big with big messages, for example, everything on our electronic health record, we have the same electronic health record versus something in our market. So look, I hope it's working. I, I do get feedback and not all of it good. Um, I, I, I'm very proud that people feel comfortable reaching out to me directly and that I pride myself on my accessibility and my responsiveness. I think they'd stop if I became inaccessible or unresponsive, but I still worry about those who uh, are not reaching out to me because you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. And I'm sure that that's sort of built into your evaluation of your program that you're implementing as well. So you're maybe picking up on some of that with your surveys. Yep. The the survey data is trending favorably. As I said, we're only about a year into this. And when you're making cultural transformations, you know, a year can be just a a very short period of time. So, uh, but the, um, the, the data is trending favorably. Mm-hmm. Um, I want this to be a topic of conversation in the, you know, at the, the dinner table and, and, want, and in the office. And I want folks to know that this is a difficult problem. It's been very hard for most organizations to move the needle on it. Not just that we're trying, but that we're actually having some success. So some of those metrics that I spoke about earlier, uh, particularly around turnover, are, are actually looking really encouraging. Um, everyone in America is talking about uh, the staffing crisis in healthcare and the great resignation, and we're no different. Um, in the practices, those 50 or so, the ones that have been at this uh, process innovation work the longest, where we're really trying to empower people and say, help us help you fix the problems in your environment. We've seen a real dramatic decrease in that first year turnover rate amongst employees. It's, 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 it's not subtle. And I know correlation does not prove causality. I get it, but there's something here. I'm telling you folks, there's something here. And if, if you um, have a better approach to solving your staffing crisis, I'd love to hear about it, but this is working. So that's really motivating both, many of us to charge on, even the naysayers. Uh, I'll say, look, be a cynic, whatever, just suspend for a minute and look at this this data. If nothing else would encourage you, I know you want your office fully staffed. Help me help you to do that. And I think that this is an approach that, that could work for you to just give it a shot. Well, I love that you say that it's even convincing the naysayers. <laughs> that means that it must be really working, you know, and you're seeing good results. So it's positive and hopeful. And I think we ought to also show when the results aren't there because, you know, I used the phrase intellectual honesty before. Do we have to be intellectually honest? We're supposed to be doctors. We're supposed to be scientists. And I think we should publish it. And that's the only way we're going to learn what works and what doesn't work and help propagate it. I'm, I'm not looking for 
some market advantage here uh, so that when my positions are more satisfied that the advanced health does does better. I, you know, I would love as your uh, podcast here is doing is to, is let, we need to force multiplier. The things that are working, we need to get it out there. So, Absolutely. Um, you know, share liberally. Uh, this is a, this is a national, international social problem. I think in healthcare, we've done a really good job of hiding it from the general public mm -hmm. for, uh, for a long time. And, um, but the, the general public will start to pay attention, I think, when there's access issues. Mm -hmm. Because if, if clinicians are retiring early, if they're reducing their FTE count, if they're not going to medicine in the first place, um, if there isn't a um, compelling enough red flag, you know, burning platform, whatever you want to call it, I don't know what, what is. And, and I'm not saying that those very sad scenarios were directly related to physician burnout. I mean, again, in a big organization, there's, there's challenges and, you know, there's, there's bad things that happen. But, but, you know, I think you have to, you have to acknowledge that this is a problem where there is real mortality and morbidity. And the mortality numbers we all know, you know, 400 uh, physicians a year die by uh, suicide, which is like four medical school classes. It's a, you know, four times the, the rate of the general population. Don't wait for that to happen in your organization. That's number one. Number two, recognize that you're all up against um, razor thin margins. And one very effective, often untapped way of enhancing those margins, just start with a clinician a turnover. If you can reduce that by a small percentage, if you're a fairly large organization like we are, you know it's millions and millions of dollars of found money. It's found money. So you know, don't don't. I mean, think about the humanity of it. <laughs> think about the finances of it. There's there's found money by just making some very very modest improvements. And I would start with the conversation. I'd start by asking. Uh, in a very non-judgmental way, your clinicians in a safe way. And then, you know, you do need to identify a, a leader. Uh, the reason I say that is because the expression, you know, when it's, when it's everybody's uh, a responsibility, it's nobody's job. It, it has to be somebody's job to kind of lead these efforts to, to track and trend and to marshal the forces. So, you know, I would say don't wait for a catastrophe. If finances are your motivator, Pursue, pursue it for that reason. Um, speak about the humanity of it. Build those trust-based relationships with the clinical leaders and identify somebody, one person uh, to lead the effort, which is gonna be you know, hopefully an, an army of change agents in your organization. Well, great. Thank you so much for summing that up, Chris. And you know, it's very inspiring to talk with you today and to share this information. Uh, even though these are really deep, sensitive topics that we're talking about and, and hard to, to discuss at times, it's also um, very um, just hopeful that you have solutions in place that are evidence-based and you're, and you're evaluating them as you go along. And uh, hopefully you're a good resource too for other C-level leaders around the country that wanna reach out to you for some direction. Yeah, uh, certainly. Um, don't consider myself an expert. I would, you're very kind. I would fall short of calling these solutions. I would, I would say they're approaches that are evidence-based that I think are directionally 
the right way, but some of this is the Wild West and we're learning as we go. And, and that's why I, I just want to make the point, if you're working on something and the data doesn't support that it's it's being particularly helpful, you know, then abandon it, but don't abandon the, the journey. It's the journey, I don't know that you could ever, you know, not go on this journey. It's, 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 it's about your organization's sustainability going forward. Absolutely. And um, in winding down today, Chris, is there anything else that you want to leave with our audience um, that we haven't touched on today? Any last message? Yeah, I, you know, as leaders, um, you know, people often just tell you how funny your jokes are. Um, spend some time, form those trust-based relationships, check on people. Um, if if you uh, pay attention uh, to the, the hurt that's out there and you uh, in a, in a, create a safe environment, you can literally save a life. Um, so just um, don't be afraid to ask folks how they're really doing. Well, thank you. And Chris, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast today. I hope that whoever's listening today has better insight and understanding to the like the multi-complex layer of trying to heal our healthcare system and our culture. Um, but Chris, I think you've done an excellent job talking about your process improvement, um, how you operate and your approach. And I just appreciate your authenticity today and your can candidness with us. Well, Katie, I appreciate, you know, as a psychiatrist that you're tackling this really difficult topic. Uh, I think you and I are aligned in our desire to to make a difference um, at, a, at, a, at a grander scale. And so thank you so much for providing me a format to share. Well, thank you. And everyone, thanks for joining us today on Hope for Healthcare. I will be posting all this information on Chris's bio page on my website, and we will be posting on social media as well. So stay tuned. And if you have any questions or concerns, feel free to reach out to Chris and we will have his contact information available as well. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Take care.